0: chapter 7 of my southern home or the south and its people this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org recording by james k white my southern home or the south and its people by william wells brown chapter 7 Forty years ago, in the southern states, superstition held an exalted place with all classes, but more especially with the blacks and uneducated or poor whites. This was shown more clearly in their belief in witchcraft in general, and the devil in particular. To both of these classes, the devil was a real being, sporting a clubfoot, horns, tail, and a hump on his back. The influence of the devil was far greater than that of the Lord. If one of these votaries had stolen a pig, and the fear of the Lord came over him, he would most likely ask the Lord to forgive him, but still cling to the pig. But if the fear of the devil came upon him, in all probability he would drop the pig and take to his heels. In those days the city of St. Louis had a large number who had implicit faith in voodooism. I once attended one of their midnight meetings. In the pale rays of the moon, the dark outlines of a large assemblage was visible, gathered about a small fire, conversing in different tongues. They were negroes of all ages, women, children, and men. Finally, the noise was hushed, and the assembled group assumed an attitude of respect. They made way for their queen, and a short black old negress came upon the scene, followed by two assistants, one of whom bore a cauldron, and the other a box. The cauldron was placed over the dying embers. The queen drew forth, from the folds of her gown, a magic wand, and the crowd formed a ring around her. Her first act was to throw some substance on the fire. The flames shot up with a lurid glare. Now it writhed in serpent coils, now it darted upward in forked tongues, and then it gradually transformed itself into a veil of dusky vapours. At this stage, after a certain amount of gibberish and wild gesticulation from the Queen, the box was opened, and frogs, lizards, snakes, dog-liver, and beef-hearts drawn forth and thrown into the cauldron. Then followed more gibberish and gesticulation, when the congregation joined hands and began the wildest dance imaginable, keeping it up until the men and women sank to the ground from mere exhaustion. In the ignorant days of slavery there was a general belief that a horseshoe hung over the door would ensure good luck. I have seen negroes otherwise comparatively intelligent refuse to pick up a pen, needle, or other such object dropped by a negro, because, as they alleged, if the person who dropped the articles had a spite against them, to touch anything they dropped would voodoo them, and make them seriously ill. Nearly every large plantation, with any considerable number of negroes, had at least one who laid claim to be a fortune-teller, and who was regarded with more than common respect by his fellow-slaves. Dinky, a full-blooded African, large in frame, coarse-featured and claiming to be a descendant of a king in his native land, was the oracle on the poplar farm. At the time of which I write, Dinky was about fifty years of age, and had lost an eye, and was, to say the least, a very ugly-looking man. No one in that section was considered so deeply immersed in voodooism, gooferism, and fortune-telling as he. Although he had been many years in the Gaines family, no one could remember the time when Dinky was called upon to perform manual labor. He was not sick, yet he never worked. No one interfered with him. If he felt like feeding the chickens, pigs, or cattle, he did so. Dinky hunted, slept, was at the table at mealtime, roamed through the woods, went to the city, and returned when he pleased with no one to object or to ask a question. Everybody treated him with respect. The whites, throughout the neighborhood, tipped their hats to the old one-eyed negro, while the policemen or patrollers permitted him to pass without a challenge. The negroes everywhere stood in mortal fear of Uncle Dinky. The blacks who saw him every day were always thrown upon their good behavior, when in his presence... I once asked a negro why they appeared to be afraid of Dinky. He looked at me, shrugged his shoulders, smiled, shook his head, and said, "'I ain't afraid of the devil, but I ain't ready to go to him just yet.' He then took a look around and behind, as if he feared someone would hear what he was saying, and then continued, "'Dinky's got de power, sir. He knows things seen and unseen.' and that's what makes him his own massa it was literally true this man was his own master he wore a snake skin around his neck carried a petrified frog in one pocket and a dried lizard in the other a slave speculator once came along and offered to purchase dinky dr gaines no doubt thought it a good opportunity to get the elephant off his hands and accepted the money A day later the trader returned the old negro, with a threat of a suit at law for damages. A new overseer was employed by Dr. Gaines to take charge of Poplar Farm. His name was Grove Cook, and he was widely known as a man of ability in managing plantations, and in raising a large quantity of produce from a given number of hands. Cook was called a hard overseer. The negroes dreaded his coming. "'and for weeks before his arrival "'the overseer's name was on every slave's tongue. "'Cook came. "'He called the negroes up, men and women, "'counted them, looked them over "'as a purchaser would a drove of cattle "'that he intended to buy. "'As he was about to dismiss them, "'he saw Dinky come out of his cabin. "'The sharp eye of the overseer was at once on him. "'Who is that nigger?' inquired Cook. "'That is Dinky,' replied Dr. Gaines. "'What is his place?' continued the overseer. "'Oh, Dinky is a gentleman at large,' was the response. "'Have you any objection to his working?' "'None whatever.' "'Well, sir,' said Cook, "'I'll put him to work tomorrow morning.' Dinky was called up and counted in. At the roll-call the following morning, All answered except the conjurer. He was not there. The overseer inquired for Dinky, and was informed that he was still asleep. "'I will bring him out of his bed in a hurry,' said Cook, as he started towards the negro's cabin. Dinky appeared at his door, just as the overseer was approaching. "'Follow me to the barn,' said the impatient driver to the negro. I make it a point always to whip a nigger the first day that I take charge of a farm, so as to let the hands know who I am. And now, Mr. Dinky, they tell me that you have not had your back tan for many years. And that being the case, I shall give you a flogging that you will never forget. Follow me to the barn." Cook started for the barn, but turned and went into his house to get his whip. At this juncture. "'Dinky gave a knowing look to the other slaves, who were standing by, and said, "'If he lays de weight of his finger on me, you'll see the top of that bond come off.' The reappearance of the overseer, with the large negro whip in one hand and a club in the other, with the significant demand of, "'Follow me,' caused a deep feeling in the breast of every negro present.' Dr. Gaines, expecting a difficulty between his new driver and the conjurer, had arisen early and was standing at his bedroom window looking on. The news that Dinky was to be whipped spread far and near over the place, and had called forth men, women, and children. Even Uncle Ned, the old negro of ninety years, had crawled out of his straw and was at his cabin door. As the barn doors closed behind the overseer and dinky, a deathlike silence pervaded the entire group, who, instead of going to their labor, as ordered by the driver, was standing as if paralyzed, gazing intently at the barn, expecting every moment to see the roof lifted. Not a word was spoken by anyone except Uncle Ned, who smiled, shook his head, put on a knowing countenance, and said, My word for it. D'obasilla ain't a-goin' to whip dinky." Five minutes, ten minutes, fifteen minutes passed, and the usual sound of, "'Oh, pray, massa, oh, pray, massa,' heard on the occasion of a slave being punished, had not yet proceeded from the barn. Many of the older negroes gathered around Uncle Ned, for he and Dinky occupied the same cabin, and the old superannuated slave knew more about the affairs of the conjurer than any one else. Ned told of how, on the previous night, Dinky had slept but little, had closely inspected the snakeskin around his neck, the petrified frog and dried lizard in his pockets, and had rubbed himself all over with goofer. And, when he had finished, he knelt and exclaimed, now good and lovely devil for more than twenty years i have served you faithfully before i got into your service the white folks bought and sold me and my old wife and chillin', and whipped me and half starved me they did treat me mighty bad that you knows then i used to pray to the lord but that did no good cause the white folks don't fear the lord but they fears you and ever since i got into your service I is able to do as I please. No white dares to lay his hand on me, and this is all owing to the power that you give me. O oh, good and lovely devil, please to continue that power. A new overseer is to come here to-morrow, and he wants to get me in his hands. But dear devil, I ax you to stand by me in this my trial hour, and I will never desert you as long as I live. Continue this power. Make me strong in your cause. Make me to be more faithful to you, and let me still be able to conquer my enemies, and I will give you all the glory, and will try to deserve a seat at your right hand. With bated breath, everyone listened to Uncle Ned. All had the utmost confidence in Dinky's power. None believed that he would be punished, while a large number expected to see the roof of the barn burst off at any moment. At last the suspense was broken. The barn door flew open. The overseer and the conjurer came out together, walking side by side, and separated when halfway up the walk. As they parted, Cook went to the field, and Dinky to his cabin. The slaves all shook their heads significantly. The fact that the old negro had received no punishment was evidence of his victory over the slave driver. But how the feat had been accomplished was a mystery. No one dared to ask Dinky, for he was always silent, except when he had something to communicate. Every one was afraid to inquire of the overseer. There was, however, one faint chance of getting an inkling of what had occurred in the barn, and that was through Uncle Ned. This fact made the old superannuated slave the hero and center of attraction for several days— Many were the applications made to Ned for information, but the old man did not know or wish to exaggerate the importance of what he had learned. "'I tell you,' said Dolly, "'Dinky is a power.' "'He's nobody's fool,' responded Hannah. "'I would not make him mad with me for this whole world,' ejaculated Jim." Just then Nancy the cook came in brimful of news. She had given Uncle Ned some cracklin' bread, which had pleased the old man so much that he had opened his bosom and told her all that he got from Dinky. This piece of information flew quickly from cabin to cabin and brought the slaves hastily into the kitchen. It was night. Nancy sat down, looked around, and told Billy to shut the door. This heightened the interest so that the fall of a pin could have been heard. All eyes were upon Nancy, and she felt keenly the importance of her position. Her voice was generally loud, with a sharp ring which could be heard for a long distance, especially in the stillness of the night. But now Nancy spoke in a whisper, occasionally putting her finger to her mouth, indicating a desire for silence, even when the breathing of those present could be distinctly heard. When they got in the barn, the Obesia said to Dinky, Strip yourself." I don't want to tear your clothes with my whip. I'm going to tear your black skin." Then, you see, Dinky told the overseer to look in the east corner of the barn. He looked and he saw hell with all the torments and the devil with his cloven foot a-strutting about there just as if he was cocked to walk. And Dinky told Cook that if he lay his finger on him, he'd call the devil up to take him away. And what did Cook say to that? asked jim let me alone. i didn't tell you all said nancy den you see the overseer turned pale in the face and he said to dinky let me go this time and i'll never trouble you any more this concluded nancy's story as related to her by old ned and religiously believed by all present whatever caused the overseer to change his mind regard to the flogging of dinky it was certain that he was most thoroughly satisfied to let the old negro off without the threatened punishment and although he remained at poplar farm as overseer for five years he never interfered with the conjurer again it is not strange that ignorant people should believe in characters of dinky stamp but it is really marvellous that well-educated men and women should give any countenance whatever to such delusions as were practised by the oracle of Poplar Farm. The following illustration may be taken as a fair sample of the easy manner in which Dinky carried on his trade. Miss Martha Lemmy, being on a visit to Mrs. Gaines, took occasion during the day to call upon Dinky. The conjurer knew the antecedents of his visitor, and was ready to give complete satisfaction in his particular line when the young lady entered the old man's cabin he met her bade her be welcome and tell what she had come for she took a seat on one stool and he on another taking the lady's right hand in his dinky spit into its palm rubbed it looked at it shut his one eye opened it and said i sees a young gentleman he's rich, and owns plenty of land, and a heap of niggers, and, lo, Miss Marfa, he loves you." The lady drew a long breath of seeming satisfaction, and asked, "'Are you sure that he loves me, Uncle Dinky?' "'Oh, Miss Marfa, I knows it like a book.' "'Have you ever seen the gentleman?' the lady inquired. The conjurer began rubbing the palm of the snow-white hand. Talked to himself in an undertone, smiled, then laughed out, and saying, "'Why, Miss Marfa, as I lives, it's Mr. Scott, and he's thinking about you now. Yes, he's got his mind on you this blessed minute. But how he's changed since I seed him de last time. Now he's got side whiskers, and a mustache on his chin. But let me see. Here's something strange.' The web looks a little smoky, and when I gets to that spot, I can't get along till a little silver is given to me. Here the lady drew forth her purse and gave the old man a half-dollar piece that made his one eye fairly twinkle. He resumed. Ah, now the fog is cleared away, and I see that Mr. Scott is sitting in a rocking chair with both feet on the table and smoking a cigar. Do you think Mr. Scott loves me?' inquired the lady. "'Oh, yes,' responded Dinky. "'He just sets his whole heart on you.' "'Indeed, Miss Martha. He's almost dying about you.' "'He never told me that he loved me,' remarked the lady. "'But then, you see, he's backward. He ain't got his eye-teeth cut yet in love matters. But he'll get a little bolder every time he sees you,' replied the negro. Do you think he'll ever ask me to marry him? Oh, yes, Miss Martha, he's sure to do that. As he sits there in his rocking chair, he looks mighty solemn collie. Looks like he wanted to axe you to have him now. Do you think that Mr. Scott likes any other lady Uncle Dinky? Asked Miss Lemmy. Well, Miss Martha, I'll just consult the web and see. And here the conjurer, shut his one eye, opened it, shut it again, talked to himself in an undertone, opened his eye, looked into the lady's hand, and exclaimed, Ah, Miss Martha, I see a lady in the way, and she's got riches. But de web is smoky, and it needs a little silver to clear it up. With tears in her eyes, and almost breathless, Miss Lemmy hastily took from her pocket her purse, AND HANDED THE OLD MAN ANOTHER PIECE OF MONEY, SAYING, PLEASE GO ON. DINKY SMILED, SHOOK HIS HEAD, GOT UP AND SHUT HIS cabin DOOR, SAT DOWN, AND AGAIN TOOK THE LADY'S HAND IN HIS. YES, I SEE, SAID HE, I SEE IT'S A LADY, BUT BLESS YO SOUL, MISS Moffa, IT'S A LIKENESS OF YOU THAT MR. SCOTT IS LOOKING AT, THAT'S ALL. THIS MORSEL OF NEWS GAVE GREAT RELIEF and Miss Lemmy dried her eyes with joy. Dinky then took down the old rusty horseshoe from over his cabin door, held it up, and said, "'Dis horseshoe neffa lies.' Here he took out of his pocket a bag made of the skin of the rattlesnake, and took from it some goofer, sprinkled it over the horseshoe, saying, "'Dis is de stuff, Miss Marfa, dat's gonna make you Mr. Scott's conquer." Long as you keep this goofer about you, he can't get away from you. He'll ask you for a kiss the bare next time he meets you, and he can't help himself from doing it. No woman can get him from you so long as you keep this goofer about you. Here Dinky lighted a tallow candle, looked at it, smiled, shook his head. You's going to marry Mr. Scott in one year, and you's going to have 13 cheerin'. Seven boys and six gals, and you's going to have a heap of riches.' Just then, Dinky's interesting revelations were cut short by Ike and Cato, bringing along Peter, who, it was said, had been killed by the old bell-sheep. It appears that Peter had a way of playing with the old ram, who was always ready to butt at anyone who got in his way. When seeing the ram coming, Peter would get down on his hands and knees, and pretend that he was going to have a butting match with the sheep. And when the latter would come full tilt at him, Peter would dodge his head so as to miss the ram, and the latter would jump over the boy, turn around angrily, shake his head, and start for another butt at Peter. This kind of play was repeated sometimes for an hour or more, to the great amusement of both whites and blacks. But on this occasion Peter was completely caught, As he was on his hands and knees, the ram started on his usual run for the boy. The latter, in dodging his head, run his face against a stout stub of dry rye stalk, which caused him to quickly jerk up his head, just in time for the sheep to give him a fair butt squarely in the forehead, which knocked Peter senseless. The ram, elated with his victory, began to back himself for another lick at Peter, when the men, seeing what had happened to the poor boy, took him up and brought him to Dinky's cabin to be resuscitated, or brought to, as they termed it. Nearly an hour passed in rubbing the boy before he began to show signs of consciousness. He come to, but he never again accepted a butting match with the ram. End of chapter 7 Recording by James K. White, Chula Vista